0: 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, and passage for examination this morning is verses 29 through 34. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from hum- human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead aren't raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shape. Let's ask God's help to understand His Word. Father, we pray that as we examine this passage of Scripture, you would fulfill what we have sung and prayed for, that you would make us wise to keep your law and with our whole heart attend unto your Word, not only to understand it, but to lay it up in our hearts and then connect it to our lives and put it into practice. We can't do this on our own, and so we plead with you now for the grace and the illumination of your Spirit that we would not only see Jesus, but that we would love Him, and we would live uh, for His glory in everything. Amen. You may be seated. Well, since. Um, we have made our move recently, I have been eager to use a remodeling or a moving story as an illustration of some sort of sermonic truth, and I think I found a connection here this morning. And uh, the story begins with gurgling. Uh, I was doing some work with my sons in one of our bathrooms and we began to hear gurgling. And uh, as we began to investigate the gurgling, we noticed that there was water coming up in the shower and in the toilet at the same time. And, uh, of course, that was nerve-wracking because we weren't using any water in that particular bathroom. So I uh, walked through the house to investigate the problem to see uh, what might be going on, and I walked into the other bathroom, and, of course, uh, there I found the very same gurgling and water coming up in the bathrooms. And... uh, I realized that we had a problem. We had a situation. And so we called out the plumber, and the plumber brings out his plumber snake, and he puts it in the line, and he runs into a huge obstacle, and he said, I just don't have the right equipment to do this job. Now that's something you don't want to hear. And so we called out another plumber, and he brings out an even bigger plumber snake and runs it down the very same line, and he runs into this obstacle and says, I just don't have the equipment to do this job. So he went back to the shop, and he brings out even bigger equipment with a camera, and he runs it down the drain, and sure enough, as I'm looking at the television monitor with this camera, I see something that looks like an oversized football stuffed in the main cleanout, in the main drain. It was a big problem. Well, it wasn't an oversized football, as it turns out. It was tree roots from the ficus trees, which had overwhelmed our drainage lines, and it was a big problem. You see, what in the world do ficus trees clogging up a main drain have to do with a sermon? Well, I think it's like this. The Apostle Paul has been admonishing the Corinthians all throughout this book. You'll remember that. Lots of different times he's had to admonish them and to correct them. What we have here in our passage is a diagnosis of the problem. I think that Paul has finally reached the point where he is ready to diagnose the real problem that has been plaguing the Corinthians. And you can see that in verse 33 when he says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You see, all of these admonitions that he had to give because of all the disfiguration in terms of their living out the Christian life, the Apostle Paul could say could be indications of spiritual backup in their life. There's something that is clogging up their hearts and minds so there is a disconnect between what they know theologically to be true and the application of that to their life. And what the Apostle is arguing here is the culprit, the thing that is blocking them up so that they're not living out the Christian life in the way that they are called to before God, is that they are spending far too much time dabbling in ideas. This is precisely what Paul means when he says bad company corrupts good morals. We must not misread this in a moralistic fashion and assume that the Apostle Paul is saying if you hang around bad people, you're going to engage in bad conduct. That might be true, but that's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here when he says bad company should be translated bad conversations. You see, in other words, what he is saying is he's warning them uh, against this practice of so many in the church where they made themselves open to new ideas. We could say, in a sense, they're idea tasters. They enjoy thinking about what is abstract and speculative and mysterious instead of focusing in on the well-worn, well-founded truths of the Christian faith. And so, what we have here is a diagnosis: the thing that's causing the problem in their life is that they are having far too many conversations, far too much social intercourse with, far too many verbal exchanges about with uh, those who are leading them astray into false ideology and false spirituality. Paul says that corrupts your life. Now he connects that into a specific problem, and that is the false ideology which is leading them, or, or some of them at least, to think about uh, the idea that there's no bodily resurrection. After all, we've said this numerous times throughout 1 Corinthians 15, that somebody has the ear of this Corinthian congregation, or at least some of the people in the congregation, and they're telling them that having a physical body is a liability to a deep, personal, eternal relationship with God. And the best way to remove that obstacle is to get rid of the body and to have no hope of a future bodily resurrection. And so, of course, the Apostle Paul has been bringing out enormous theological guns to beat down this argument. We've seen that repeatedly. He shows the theological implications, for instance, of, of this ideology. That it means that Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. It means the apostolic preaching is vain. It means faith is vain. It means that dead people who were believers, have perished forever. It means Christians are most miserable of all. And, and you can kind of see as he ticks off the, the problems with this particular uh, ideology, he finally heads towards what's practical here at the end of verse 19 when he says, Christians are most miserable. But then he spends the next several verses talking about the guarantee of bodily resurrection on account of Jesus Christ. And now, in our passage... Uh, he returns to two practical arguments. Two practical arguments uh, for why there will be a bodily resurrection uh, of believers at the end of the age. So that's how we're going to divide up our message this morning. This is how we're going to tackle our text. We're going to notice there are two practical arguments uh, supporting the bodily resurrection. Then we're going to finally look at the admonition that Paul uh, wants to give these Corinthians so that he steers them away in the future from a dabbling in false ideology and false speculation let's take up uh, the practical argument the the first one here in verse 29 is a difficult practical argument I'll admit that the apostle says otherwise what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead aren't raised at all why then are they baptized for them And I'll be honest with you right up front, this is on the top ten list of the most difficult verses in all the Bible. Because uh, on the surface, uh, it appears that the Apostle Paul is saying that there are some people in the Corinthian church who are being baptized for dead people. Now you can appreciate the problem with that without too much reflection. Uh, Because literally what he's saying is uh, there is this very peculiar practice that the Corinthians are following. Now, it it if that's the way it is, if the surface reading or if appearances are correct, uh, the Apostle is saying that the Corinthians are doing something that nobody else was. Uh, Gordon Fee has a tremendously insightful comment on this verse uh, when he says, "...the plain reading of this text would never have been challenged if it didn't involve so many difficulties." He says, there's no historical precedent for such baptism, that is, a baptism for the dead. The New Testament is silent about such a practice, and there is no such practice in any of the churches, in any Orthodox Christian community, in the centuries that follow the Apostolic Age, nor are there precedents and parallels in pagan religion. And then secondly, he says, uh, this initiates a massive theological problem, because it, uh, it sounds like or it implies a view of the sacrament of baptism, which is terribly superstitiously magical. Now, let's uh, step back from that insight for a moment and just appreciate what it is that he's saying. Uh, if you look at verse 29 on the surface of it, it's fairly easy to understand, right? It appears that Paul is saying that there are people in Corinth who are being baptized for dead people. But that kind of a reading of the verse creates all kinds of theological problems because nobody in the New Testament church was practicing such a baptism. We can't find any evidence of that in the churches after the apostles. And even, maybe even more difficult, is there was no known practice of baptizing for the dead in the surrounding pagan religions which would in some way maybe help account for what the Corinthians were doing. We could just say well they borrowed it from their pagan past but that wasn't happening among the pagans and so you can begin to appreciate uh, the problem here. They're doing something that's exclusively peculiar to them and what intensifies the problem is that it seems that the Apostle Paul uh, doesn't rebuke him for it which would suggest that, at least implicitly, he's in agreement with what they're doing. So how do we interpret this very difficult phrase? Well, if we struggle with it, we're in good company. Uh, There are over 40 different catalogued interpretations of this verse. And uh, no, we're not going to go through all 40 this morning. We'll give you a sense of what's out there, and then I'm going to lead us where I think is the right area for interpreting this passage. But uh, clearly there are some who have interpreted this very literally and straightforwardly. And one reason why people have been prone to do that is because in the 2nd century there was a heretical group called the Marcionites who did something similar to this. That is, if they had somebody who was being catechized in preparation for joining their church, and that person died before they could make profession of faith and receive baptism, then one of the members of the church would receive baptism for them. And so some people who have looked at that practice, and by the way, that was universally condemned by the church, It was seen as wrong and heretical and unbiblical. However, some interpreters had said, yes, we think that the roots of that practice are probably in the practice of the Corinthians. But the problem with that interpretation is that nobody in the ancient church seemed to believe that was the case. All of the fathers universally were opposed to that practice and identified it as heretical. And so it never gained any traction in the history of the church until guess when? The rise of Mormonism. Because uh, as Mormons understand it, uh, a Mormon, a member of the Mormon church, uh, can go to the Mormon clergy with the prescribed amount of money and ask to be baptized for the dead. And uh, of course the theology behind that is if they receive the baptism for the dead, then that dead person will go to be with them in heaven. Uh, Dr. Ironside, in his book called Random Reminiscences, tells of an elderly, rich, Mormon lady who was baptized over 30,000 times in her life for others. Uh, She went through all of her family and received baptism for them, each time paying the church for the right for this baptism, by the way. Uh, Then she went through all of her friends and neighbors, And when she ran out of people to be baptized for, uh, she decided that she would go into the pages of history and start receiving baptism for notoriously famous people. And just some of the people who were included on that list of famous people include Alexander the Great, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, and Cleopatra. Now, uh, really, we can dismiss this interpretation, however, because it's so theologically incoherent and so obviously and patently wrong that it's easy to dismiss. But that is one interpretation. Another interpretation that has gained just a tiny little bit of support is that unbelievers in Corinth were asking to be baptized for departed Christians. Or those who were preparing to be Christians. And, and, and the idea behind this particular interpretation is that they would have received that kind of a baptism because they had such a love and veneration and respect and relationship with that deceased person that they sort of wanted to hitch their train to theirs and be with them in eternity. And we can easily uh, dismiss that because it's entirely baseless. Uh, there's nothing in the text which would indicate that. Another view. Uh, is that this is a metaphor. When uh, Paul says they're being baptized for the dead, they take that metaphorically. That baptism there is referring to some sort of a great suffering or crisis. Uh, Jesus, for instance, uses baptism that way. He says he has a baptism to be baptized with in Jerusalem. Of course, he's talking about the cross. But that doesn't make sense of what Paul is saying here, because it says they're being baptized for the dead. It wouldn't make sense to say that I'm going to go through a terrible suffering and crisis in my life for a dead person. Uh, One interpretation that received some support in the early church was uh, to say that when Paul talks about being baptized for the dead, instead of translating the preposition there, for, uh, translate it over. And so the idea is, you would go and receive baptism over the grave of a martyr. And there does seem to be some indication in in pockets of early Christianity that that was done. But the problem with taking that as the proper interpretation of this passage is the preposition there doesn't mean over. It just doesn't. It means for. For. So, that's just four unsatisfactory options, and and you can kind of see uh, through going uh, through that list there that uh, they just won't work. And and because of that, it's been the consensus of scholars that there's really no way to understand this verse at all. For instance, uh, Charles Hodge reflects the sentiments of so many when he says, The darkness which rests on this passage can never be entirely cleared away, because the reference is to a custom of which no account is present. So he said, let's leave it in the past. Now there's a lot of wisdom in that approach. Uh, Frankly, there is a lot of wisdom in the approach that says, we can't uh, come up with a reasonable understanding and interpretation of this passage, so we're going to be silent about it. And sometimes when somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer to it, the best answer is, I don't know. Don't make it up. Because it just makes more problems than it solves. But you see, I'm with a group of, or rather narrow group of people who think that there is actually a good answer to this particular question here. What does it mean when Paul says they're being baptized for the dead? And there's a couple of reasons why I think there is a viable option here. And the first one is this. The Apostle Paul begins, uh, verse 29, with the word otherwise. He says otherwise. You see, he's challenging their practice as inconsistent. He's saying, uh, you're being baptized for the dead, but that's entirely inconsistent with your idea that there's no bodily resurrection in the future. You see, you're being baptized for the dead, he is saying, expressing that what it is doing is expressing a hope in a bodily resurrection when you are starting to think that there isn't one. It's challenging it. He says the only way that is a consistent practice is if we believe in a bodily resurrection. So that otherwise there makes me think that we have to come up with a good solution because Paul is agreeing with what they're doing. He's saying, yeah, it it is a proper symbol. Whatever's going on here properly symbolizes a hope in bodily resurrection in the future. But it was John Calvin who helped untie this knot when he said this. He said, would he, that is Paul, in the meantime have uttered not a single word in reference to such a base profanation of baptism... Which was a much more grievous fault. He goes on to say uh, he is rebuked with great anger against those who were frequenting banquets of the Gentile Gentiles. He says, Would he have suffered this horrible superstition of the Gentiles to be openly carried on in the church itself under the name of sacred baptism? Uh, you see what Calvin is saying, he's saying, uh, Paul cites the practice, he doesn't rebuke them for it. he doesn't seem to disagree with it, and yet, uh, if it was wrong, he would have, because in every other case in this letter to the Corinthians, he's never backed off of an admonition when he needed to say something to the Corinthians. He's been very bold and forthright and honest to straighten them out when they were believing things that were wrong or doing things that were wrong. And so he goes, it would be very strange here within the framework of of chapter 15 not to uh, address that and to rebuke it. And so he concludes, he says, for my part, Paul speaks here of the right use of baptism and not the abuse. So what's the answer What is the answer to this baptism for the dead? Well, I think it is this. It is a real baptism. It is Christian baptism. But you have to uh, see that dead here is to be taken metaphorically. It is a sign of the condition of the sinner outside of Christ. That's it. You see, what Paul is talking about, he's just explaining baptism from a different angle, and he's saying that a person who is going to go receive baptism is acknowledging themselves to be dead apart from Christ. They're dead spiritually. They're fallen in Adam. And by their receiving baptism, they're acknowledging that, and and they are signifying and sealing the death of the old man in the death of Christ. And then they are expressing the hope of resurrection because they understand that baptism also symbolizes and seals union with Christ in his resurrection. You know, that's exactly how Paul talks of baptism in Romans 6. Verses 4 and 5, he says, Therefore we have been buried with Christ through baptism unto death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. But now listen to this verse 5. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. See that? Paul is saying here that baptism symbolizes not only union with Christ in His death, but union with Christ in His resurrection. And the reason why here they are baptizing or rather receiving baptism for themselves as dead people, those who are spiritually dead, is to express their faith in Christ and that their life is hidden with him both in his death and is hidden with Christ in his glorious resurrection of the future. So there it is. These are believers. These are people who have been instructed. These are people who have been taught. They've, un- they've understood their sinfulness. And they've understood the only remedy is in Christ. And they're expressing that by undergoing baptism. This is not a novel interpretation, by the way. It fits the grammar of the passage. It fits the language of Of the passage, it would fit with the theological context of Scripture, and besides that, it also fits, it is the unanimous interpretation of the Greek fathers. You see, there's a good answer to what's going on here. This baptism for the dead is baptism of believers acknowledging themselves to be dead in their sins and Christ to be their life. I believe that's the right interpretation of the passage and what that does for us. And I've intentionally walked us through this process to reinforce a point about interpretation. It's to reinforce a point about interpretation which is as old as the foundation of Protestantism and the Reformed faith. Which is that we interpret the Bible according to the analogy of faith. In other words, what we're saying is that within the scripture, there is a system of doctrine which is coherent, which holds together. And we come across a difficult passage, we're to do exactly what we have done compare the words and the grammar and the context and the theology, and then match it up against the history of interpretation of the church. There's a way to deal with difficult passages. Well, we have this first practical argument that Paul makes. He says, well, it's obvious that there is a bodily resurrection because baptism, the baptism that you're undergoing, Christian baptism, uh, signifies and seals and declares that there is a, a victorious bodily resurrection in the future. But now that comes to a second practical argument that Paul makes in verses 30 through 32. He says uh, in verse 30, Why are we also in danger every hour? Now this argument here is practical. And uh, basically Paul is arguing for the resurrection based upon the absurdity of the contrary. He says, Why are we in danger every hour? Then connect... Uh, well, in my translation, I die daily. Is at the end of verse 31, but in the Greek, it's at the beginning. And so verse 30 should read like this. Why are we also in danger every hour? I die daily. You see, he's trying to communicate the fact uh, that as he fulfills his apostolic calling and ministry, he is constantly beset with all kinds of trials, with all kinds of suffering, with all kinds of persecution such that the Apostle Paul feels such a tremendous way of suffering upon him, that he can describe it as a daily dying. Because it's riddled with so many miseries. And he expands upon those miseries in verse 31. He says, I affirm by boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. He takes an oath. This is what's so interesting about verse 31 is the Apostle Paul, just after he has said he's in danger every hour, he dies daily, in verse 31, he backs that up with an oath. He says, I swear, I swear it's the truth that I'm always in this condition of dying daily and enduring great, great physical suffering and persecution for the sake of the ministry verse 32 he colors that in a little bit more he says if from human perspectives or human motives i fought with wild beasts at ephesus what does it profit me see there he intensifies the language of conflict in uh, verse 32 saying uh, he fought with wild beasts now that's not to be taken literally that's that's metaphorically he's talking about the intensity of of the conflict of ministry it's kind of similar to how Paul speaks in other places as well. But it highlights the, uh, the nature of the problem, the difficulty. Now here's, here's, here's what he's saying. If I do that from human motives, what does it profit me? He, what he's saying here is that if I have done all this, if I have endured uh, the danger every hour, the dying every day, the fighting with wild beasts at Ephesus. And if I'm doing this all the time uh, from a human perspective, that is from this idea that there is no life after death, there is no resurrection from the grave. He says, what is the profit? What is the point? What is the motive? What would motivate somebody to endure such great conflict and great suffering for really no personal gain at all if there's no bodily resurrection? You see, the thing here that is animating and motivating and energizing and sustaining the Apostle Paul through all of these terrible times as a minister of the Word is this burning hope within him that the body will be raised from the dead. And if that doesn't happen, Paul says it's useless. It's useless to endure this. Just to reinforce that idea that it's... It's useless in that there is no motive at all, the Apostle Paul says in the latter part of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, there is the expression of the utter hopelessness of the unbelieving point of view. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's all you have. All you have right now is life now. That's it. And if there's no life after death, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then you better live it up while you have the chance. I remember as a boy, uh, my grandfather always reinforcing that message to me. He was an atheist, of course. died in unbelief. But but what he would do is he would always uh, sort of snidely mock uh, cynically our pattern of life by saying, "Uh, you know, John, Enjoy it while it lasts, because you only go around once. And he had a motto. He said uh, that you're to do all the easy things you can, or all the things that you want, and the easy things twice. Do everything that you want, and the easy things twice. Because all you have is this life. Paul said, if that's my motive, then there's no reason for me to be in danger every hour. There's no reason for me to be dying daily. There's no reason for me to be fighting with deadly beasts at Ephesus, the only thing that animates Paul is that there really is a powerful victory over death that's been won by Christ. And there's an admonition in here for us, and that is that uh, as believers we're to live as if this is true. Not just as if this is true. We are to live with this animation, with this energizing impulse. You see, what happens too easily is that we get caught up in the materialism of the age. We get caught up far too easily in the pursuit of riches and the cares of this world and the problems of this life in the pursuit of riches and material goods and creaturely comforts That at some point, somehow, we can forget to consciously live out this principle, and too often it's too easy to slip into this other way of living and live as if it weren't true, that there is a bodily resurrection. And so the admonition from the Word of God here is to consciously connect our theology to our life as the Apostle Paul has. It's the motive for getting up. What's the motive for going to work? What's the motive for going off to school? What's the motive through living through difficult times? Well, there's only one answer as Christians, and that is that we live in hope. That we live in hope of the glory of the bodily resurrection. And so uh, Paul's conscious connection of this principle of being animated by and energized by belief and hope in a bodily resurrection so he would endure the sufferings of the ministry is to us an admonition to make a conscious connection between our belief in the hope of the resurrection our theological principles and connect those to how we live and so those are the practical arguments that the apostle paul makes and now secondly we deal here with his admonition it's in verses 33 and 34 uh, the verbs here, which are all commands, are basically saying the same thing. He says, don't be deceived, become sober-minded, and stop sitting. Uh, these are sort of designed to jolt and to jumpstart the Corinthians in their life. Uh, they become stuck. They're clogged up, as it were. And so uh, there are practices and things that they're doing which are contrary to the principle of the Christian life. And so he says, don't be deceived. Become sober-minded. Stop sinning. You see, and that admonition flows out of a circumstance. We've already referred to the circumstance. And the circumstance is that the Corinthians are like coffeehouse intellectuals. They're idea-tasters. They enjoy the speculative. They enjoy pondering the what-ifs and the maybes and the mysterious and the cutting-edge and the new. And Paul says that's the reason why you have this mess in your life. He says, bad conversations corrupt good morals. Bad conversations corrupt good morals. You know what? That's been going on throughout the whole book, really, if you think about it. Paul has uh, repeatedly had to deal with the problems of the Corinthians, which are rooted in false ideas. In chapter 7, he uh, has to straighten out their problems on marriage and sex because they're being influenced by a false spirituality of the body. In chapters 8 through 10, he has to correct uh, the dangerous practice of going to pagan temples and how it was causing there to be real problems and backsliding in the life of some of the believers there back into idolatrous practices because uh, they were at a place where they shouldn't be doing things they shouldn't do. Again, that's rooted in a fascination with other religious systems. At chapters 12 through 14, all of the abuse and misuse and misunderstanding of the spiritual gifts indicates a warped fascination with with, uh, false spirituality. See, all throughout the letter you find these traces of of the Corinthians being sort of open-minded to all these different perspectives and false ideologies. And those are impacting their life and very dangerous and powerful ways. And so that leads to a final point of application this morning from the Word of God, and that is uh, that we are to understand there is a profound connection between doctrine and life. There is a profound connection between doctrine and life. Paul, of course, frames that negatively in terms of uh, the connection of false doctrine and false Christian living. We shouldn't ever underestimate the danger of dabbling in false ideals. It was leading to a sort of anemic form of Christianity. They were leading failed Christian lives on account of the fact that they had a lack of deep conviction about core theological truths. And the reason why they were having a lack of deep conviction about core theological truths is that they were far too open-minded to sit around and listen and talk and have verbal exchanges with people who had entirely contrary points of view. And I I realize as I make this admonition that I I realize that it goes uh, against the grain of uh, this age. the person who is thought to be well-rounded intellectually, uh, the person who is thought of as being enlightened, is the person who is able uh, to process and to think about and interchange with and exchange ideas across all different kinds of ideologies. That's the person who's open-minded and free-thinking and ready to adapt and change and be responsive uh, to other kinds of thoughts and thought processes and ideologies. That is the model at least we're told but paul says no really what happens when we spend all of our time engaging false doctrine and false ideas and false spirituality is that it leads to bad christianity it leads to bad christian living it leads to a softening of moral sensitivities why is that Why is it that constantly interacting with false perspective, false ideology, false theology, false doctrine, false spirituality, why is it that it leads to bad Christian living? And I think the answer is simply this. That the more you interact with all of these different perspectives and sort of uh, see some truth in everything, uh, the more that softens your convictions about truth, almost to the point that, you find it difficult to find some bedrock of substantive, objective truth. And if you can't find some bedrock of substantive, objective, theological truth, then certainly there's nothing in terms of a moral foundation that can be turned to as objective and unchanging and unquestionably true. Morality becomes negotiable, and uh, I realize it may be sort of an easy illustration to make, but it's it's a fair observation to make, and this is precisely what's happened in mainline Christianity today. You reject a bodily resurrection. You reject a, a fully incarnate uh, son of God. You, you question all the books of the Bible. You, you, you become smarter than, than the Holy Spirit who inspired the word of God. And, and pretty soon, what do you have? You sit around debating whether uh, openly uh, lesbian uh, women can serve as ministers of the word in the church of God. And you have to form study committees and you have to have uh, supposedly agonizing periods of prayer and and, uh, seasons of discernment about stuff that is so so patently obvious it wouldn't take more than uh, two minutes to think about to get the right answer. It's because there is an erosion in terms of the conviction of the truth because of uh, an openness to too many different perspectives until finally... There's no bedrock of truth anymore. There's just different perspectives and we're appreciating them all. Being too open to false ideology, being too willing to explore and be open-minded towards other systems of doctrine is dangerous. And it dulls the moral senses and it leads to a failure in the Christian life. And so Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Be sober-minded. Stop sinning. I think the application in all of this is for us. Just to recommit ourselves to a life of catechism. That's what I think the answer is. Just to recommit ourselves to a life of catechism. A life of returning to the touchstones of the faith. Going back to them over and over and over and over again. And then turning them over in our hearts and minds. And through that process, God makes us sound in faith. And when he makes us sound in faith, he makes us sound in living. And so uh, we conclude with Paul's admonition. Let's be aware of and take to heart what he says here in verse 33. Don't be deceived. Uh, Bad conversations, bad social intercourse. Being too open-minded to all these different perspectives uh, corrupts uh, good morals. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to heed admonition.